Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's word to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read the first 17 verses. If you're using one of the church's blue Bibles, uh, you'll find that on page 1008. Uh, Hebrews is really right towards the end, uh, just before James, after Philemon. Beloved, this is God's word. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who had disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the lord see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of god and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like esau who sold his birthright for a single meal For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, and he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Father, this is your word, not ours, yours. But it's not always easy to hear, but it is always good, always helpful and always worthy of our time and our attention. Help us to hear you in your word, slay our pride, our assumptions, and our sin. And through our time in your word, we ask that you would make us more like Jesus. Amen. You may be seated.
I don't know if you follow the Babylon Bee, but a few weeks ago they had a great headline. Rookie move. Christian prays God would teach him patience. I'm sure you know where it goes from there. It says this, rookie Christian James Hamperton made the classic mistake of praying God would teach him patience while attending church this Sunday, and now his week is filled with the most irritating little delays and annoyances. For those of you who don't know, Babylon B is satire. But the genius of satire is that there is always truth in it, and it strikes a chord with reality. Many of us have prayed for patience only to find our patience tried, stretched, and eventually grown through difficult situations. So what do you think happens when you pray for godliness? According to the Bible, it's an invitation for discipline. But even that is vague because discipline can take so many forms. Self-discipline, brotherly confrontation, church discipline, or or simply adversity. And, And that's the point, really. It's supposed to encompass all these things. It's supposed to be a broad term. Because all of those things are a part of what God uses to shape us and to make us more like Jesus. We are in a season where we have a few cases of formal church discipline going on. And it feels like a lot. In fact, we have never had this many cases at one time in our entire church history. And that can be discouraging, it can be scary, and it can be confusing. Especially if we lose sight of what discipline is and why God tells us to do it. And so we thought it would be good to pause our series in Luke for a week and ask those questions. And there is no better passage uh, there may be no better passage than uh, to go to than Hebrews 12. Uh, the elders have spent quite a bit of time in this passage lately. It's something we need to hear and be reminded of, and we thought that it would be helpful to you if we just paused for a week and meditated on Hebrews 12. I think most of us realize that there are many churches today who don't practice church discipline. And typically, the reason given is something like, we prefer to love people. And you can hear the implication because it's quite loud, (laughs) and it's this. The implication of that statement is discipline is unloving. To love someone means not to discipline them. And I want to challenge that idea. And I really want to challenge that idea for one reason, because God says it's a lie. And so I thought it would be good to challenge Um, God says love requires discipline. That refusing to discipline is not love. In fact, God says it's hatred. Proverbs 13, 24. And that's not what we want to hear. We prefer not to say anything. We prefer to just let things go because that's easier. But God has not called us to what is easy. He has called us to do what is right. 
And so we want to talk about discipline and why God says it's so important. We want to ask why God calls us to do discipline and what the dangers are of refusing it. And I want to close in a little bit with some exhortations for all of us to consider in the midst of it. But when we do all of that, my main point is really simple and it's this. Because God loves us, he disciplines us. That's really it. That's the end of the story. That's where we're headed. Now, when I was in high school, I, I had a job at a local toy store in the mall. And I remember one day, I've probably told most of you this story at one point or another. Uh, I was in the store, and my mom and her son walked in, and they were just browsing. Um, they just poked in to walk through for a while, weren't there really to buy anything in particular. But eventually she let him know that it was time to go. And he told her, and not very nicely, no. Somewhat flustered, she repeated that it was time to go, and he repeated his refusal. This time, though, he cocked his arm with a fist, pointed at her face. Now, I was only 16 or 17 at the time, really still a child myself, at least legally and, well, in reality. Uh, But I remember thinking, that child needs discipline and became emphatically clear that he was not used to receiving it. And I'm guessing most reasonable people would agree. If you've been around for a while, you know what failure to discipline uh, leads to with children. A child who never hears no who never has consequences, who never has to go without, that child grows up to believe that he or she is entitled to everything, that everyone else's job is to meet his or her wants, not needs, but wants, and that lack of happiness must be someone else's fault. Someone without discipline can't see past the next five minutes. He never learns what is truly important because he's always obsessed with what is shiny and immediate and feels good. An undisciplined person can never forego an immediate pleasure because of something better in the future. And we have to ask, how could such a person ever truly be happy? Because he thinks that happiness comes from being served and never experiences the joy of serving someone else. He thinks fulfillment comes from possessing and never learns the mysterious peace of being content and going without. He's not just miserable perpetually, but he's miserable to be around. A lack of discipline leads to pride, entitlement, and eventually bitterness. That's the road. Many have walked it. And the only remedy is discipline. And that just raises the question, what is discipline? I think we often tend to think of it only in terms of a parent or institution bringing negative consequences on uh, some wrong that has been done. But discipline can take many forms. 
Our passage begins by talking about a great cloud of witnesses, and this is referring back to Hebrews 11, sometimes referred to as the Hall of Faith. But really, if you see what he's describing in our passage, you'll realize that the specific witnesses from the Old Testament that he's talking about are the ones listed in verses 36 and 38 who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. When he says in our passage, your struggle against sin, and in your struggle against sin, you have not yet come to the point of shedding your blood, this is what he's talking about. Those who have had their blood shed in their struggles and their plights and their afflictions. Using this as an introduction to his discussion of discipline, he's saying that in some sense, these saints of old were being disciplined through this. It was through this suffering and this affliction that they learned what really mattered. It was through this that their pride was addressed and they learned how to be content with less. They learned to look for their inheritance in heaven, not on earth. And they learned that there is joy in serving, not just being served. They learned that there are some things more important than earthly pleasure, and there are things more weighty than worldly concerns. They learned to look at life through a bigger perspective. They they began to see the world through God's eyes. They began to appreciate the eternal over the fleeting. And, and in such times, sin begins to lose its allure and its appeal. And so those afflictions then were understood as God's discipline to point his people to what really matters. Discipline is then anything that that comes and confronts our pride and it points us to a better way. Anything that comes and confronts our pride and points us to a better way. Now, when we're small, that's our parents. Later, it's friends. Sometimes, it's the church. And sometimes, it's just life. Circumstances. The circumstances that, that rub away the sharp edges, that, that humble the proud. Discipline is anything that is uncomfortable that brings about a better end. And to help us understand this, he actually points us to Jesus, who, according to verse 2, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's not that Jesus had pride that needed to be addressed, uh, but, but he is the consummate example of how God can bring about a better end through something that is ugly and unpleasant. He was willing to endure the cross because there was something beautiful and glorious on the other side. What was beautiful was our salvation. Because without the cross... There's no forgiveness of sins. Without the cross, there there is no salvation. Without the cross, there is no hope of glory. 
And so Jesus found joy not in being served, but in serving others. And if that's how God works, if God did not spare his only son, if if he brings redemption through judgment, if he can do all of this, should it surprise us that he will use uncomfortable things to make us better, to make us more like Jesus? And that means that discipline is all about helping the one who experiences it. And it's here that we really need to be careful. And this was expressed in the letter that I read, but I'm going to reiterate these things. We often think of discipline and and punishment as if they were interchangeable, but they aren't. Punishment is about justice. Discipline is about correction. Punishment focuses on, on wrongs done in the past. Discipline focuses on hope for the future. Punishment is about paying the price for what you did. Discipline is about helping you grow. Punishment focuses on behavior. Discipline focuses on the heart. Punishment is cold and legal. Discipline is warm and fatherly. In other words, God punishes his enemies. He disciplines his children. And that's what verse 5 through 11 are trying to drive home. When God disciplines us, he's treating us as children. Because God disciplines, verse 6, everyone he loves. A lack of discipline then means that you aren't a child of God. He goes on and looks at our earthly fathers in verses 9 and 10. When you were young, uh, you didn't like your parents' discipline. But later you respect them for it. You shudder to think where you would be and what kind of person you would have been without it. You come to realize that they did it because they love you. How much more should we respect and desire God's discipline? Why? Because without it, we will grow more and more arrogant and self-centered. We will become more deaf to God's word because Because God's discipline, its goal is to cultivate a heart of humility. Because without humility, you don't believe that you're needy. Without humility, you won't accept help. Without humility, you will never ask for forgiveness. I'm going to be blunt. Arrogance is a killer. It will leave you without a savior, and it will leave you without hope. Our biggest problem isn't outside of us. Our our biggest problem is our own heart. And discipline is aimed at the heart, at arrogance, to get it out, to weed it out, to destroy it, so that we might cry out and say, Father, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. So why is the writer of Hebrews writing all of this? It's It's because he wants us to learn to appreciate discipline, to actually even desire it. To fear a world where we don't have it. As he said at the beginning, sin weighs us down. Sin distracts us from where we are headed. Sin pulls us away from pursuing God. 
And we think we know what it's like to be tempted by sin. If we're honest, we'll confess that sometimes the world starts to look attractive again. And it's then that things are the most dangerous because it's then that we start to ask questions like, how far can I go? How close to the world can I get? How much sin can I get away with? And that's a road you don't want to start down. It's an affair with the world and it's the path to destruction. And I think we all know what starting down that path looks like. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth as I spread stories and gossip. I'm not violent. I just speak my mind and intimidate people who upset me. I'm not sexually promiscuous. I just look at pornography. I'm not marrying a non-Christian. I'm just dating one. I'm not rejecting God. I'm just not pursuing him very hard right now. We play games with ourselves. And yet all of these are born of pride. Each says, I don't really want to be totally committed to God. I want to keep some of my sin. And each of us falls victim to the lie that, that we can control our sin, that we can, we can always be content with just a little. We can hold it at bay and that it won't enslave us. And until that pride is addressed, sin will control you and its goal is not for your good. Its goal is to destroy you. And God tells you that the way to deal with your sin is through discipline. The question is, will you welcome that discipline if that's what it takes to deal with your sin? Is following God more important than your comfort? Will you cling to him even if it means experiencing his discipline? Will you hold on though he strip away all earthly comforts? Or will you grow bitter at his discipline? Accuse him of evil rather than good and choose comfort over righteousness. Verses 12 through 17 are meant to remind you of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Neither one was uh, particularly good on his own. But God met with Jacob and he wrestled with him. He disciplined him. And Jacob ended up crippled, humbled, and repentant. And he is in heaven. Esau never received that discipline, and he was comfortable, wealthy, and arrogant. And he is in hell. And the question that Hebrews 12 wants you to ask and answer is, would you rather limp with Jacob or strut with Esau? Would you give up all earthly comfort for heaven? Will you welcome God's discipline or will you reject it when it comes? Again, it comes in many forms. Sometimes it's just the adversity of life. Sometimes it's parents. Other times it's friends. And sometimes it's the church. 
And when, even when it comes on the level we see it today, it's not just about those individuals. 1 Timothy 5.20 says this, and this might help to understand a little bit about why we've done things the way we have this morning. 1 Timothy 5.20 says this, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, that the rest may stand in fear. The point of discipline isn't just to correct those who are being disciplined, though that's part of it. It's also to warn others of the danger of getting comfortable with sin. We need to guard our eyes, guard our tongues, our anger, because sin will lie and it will tell you that it just wants a little of your time. But its goal is to ruin your life, your marriage, your family. Gossip will alienate you from God and his people. Pornography will destroy your marriage. Unchecked anger will drive everyone you love far from you. And so the best discipline is self-discipline. 1 Corinthians 11, 31 says this, if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. And the point is, if we started by calling ourselves to account, others wouldn't have to do it. Sin is best dealt with early. But if it isn't, an outside discipline becomes necessary. If a friend has to pull you aside, if your elders have to come talk to you, may you learn to desire it. May you learn to hope for it. May you desire God above all earthly comfort. With Jacob, would you learn to cry out, do what you will, but I'm not letting go. And when that is hard, when you need strength, look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. To help us do that, the Lord has given us a visual reminder of the shame and the cross that our Lord endured for our sakes. What he, what he went through for something better on the other side. This is a picture, the Lord's Supper is a picture of discipline, in a sense. The Lord's Supper is a visual reminder that God does beautiful things through hard and ugly circumstances. It's a reminder that life comes through death, that growth comes through pruning, and righteousness comes through discipline. May we never rejoice in discipline itself, but may we always rejoice in what it accomplishes. May we thank God that that he has not left us as illegitimate children without discipline. And may we, even in our hardest moments, hold fast to Jesus and never let go. Father, we don't always understand your ways. We don't always want what you give but we do know that you are good, that your ways are above ours and that your wisdom greater than our own. And so we thank you that that even though we don't know what we need, that you do, that even when we don't want what's best, you give it, and that you care more for us than we care about ourselves. And we ask that you would make us more like Jesus. That's our desire. Give us the strength to cling to you until that day when we see you in all your glory in heaven. Amen.